Hi, my name is Stephen Brandt, and I want to welcome you to episode 6 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. In the last couple of episodes, we've started to talk about the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. And last week, we looked at Einstein's theory from the perspective of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. In today's episode, I want to answer a few questions based on last week's show, and I want to introduce you to one of the foundational experiments in special relativity called the Michelson and Morley interferometer experiment. So let's begin by jumping in and answering a few questions based on last week's episode. The first question asks, Stephen, in your bird example with the cage, doesn't the bird undergo the effects of time dilation? Or they simply ask, how does your model deal with time dilation? To answer the question, you have to recall the goal of my examples. And the goal was to help you understand why Einstein reached a conclusion that time dilation existed. While many people take it for granted that anything that is in a moving system undergoes time dilation, I think it's important to understand why Einstein reached this conclusion in the first place. In this case, if you take the mathematical equations associated with an incomplete coordinate system and associate them with the postulates or rules that are attached to a complete coordinate system, then the resulting conclusion is time dilation. Remember, Einstein only had one type of coordinate system, and by associating the postulates and the equations to the same type of coordinate system, he reasonably concluded the time dilation effect. But in the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems, you have two types of systems. And with two types of systems, you don't reach the same conclusion. Yes, you still have to explain why the clock appears to run slower in a moving system. The model must explain what we experimentally observe, but it doesn't have to explain it in the same way or using the same terms as Einstein did. In order to see what's going on, I want to provide you with an example. And just like I said last time, these examples are designed to help you understand the concepts. So let's begin by having you repeat the same experiments that I gave in last week's episode. Only this time, we're going to cover up your watch so that you can't see it. So in order to measure time, you have to figure something else out. You know that when the truck was stationary, it takes the bird five seconds to fly from the rear of the cage to the front of the cage. So you can reasonably conclude that you could use the bird to tell time. Yes, you can only count in five second intervals, but given that it's either that or nothing, you'll go for the bird. Now remember, in a complete coordinate system, one where the trailer of a large tractor truck is completely enclosed, for example, it doesn't matter how fast the, the truck is going. It will still take the bird five seconds to make the trip. No problem here. But in an incomplete coordinate system, things are a little different. Let's see what happens when the cage is pulled by the truck. In this case, the bird has to fly farther than when the truck was stationary. And if you could see your watch, you'd see that it now takes the bird 20 seconds to make the journey. But you can't see your watch because we've covered it. All you have to go on is the bird and its behavior. So you conclude, oh, it's been five seconds. That's how long it takes a bird to fly from the back of the cage to the front. Now the person sitting next to you, and let's say that you're both in the cage just for the sake of argument, he looks at his watch and says, what? Are you crazy? It took 20 seconds on my watch. So who's right? The guy with his watch who said it took 20 seconds or you who's saying it took five? Well, obviously the correct answer is 20 seconds, 
but it points out an effect that I call time distortion, which occurs when you have a moving system and your timekeeping device has to work harder or travel farther as a result. In this case, the bird was our timekeeping device. It had to work harder, it had to flap its wings more times to get from one end of the cage to the other. Now, Einstein calls this effect time dilation because he not only uses the bird as his timekeeping device, he says it must take the bird five seconds as defined by his postulates because that's what happened when the coordinate system was stationary. And just as a reminder, Einstein does not use birds or trucks. He uses rays of lights and reference frames. But if you can get your arms around the concepts, it's essentially the same math. I hope that you can see that when you have two types of coordinate systems, one where the postulates apply and another where the equations apply, you don't have to have the same reason. But you still have to explain why what you're observing is behaving in a certain way. I explain the same effect using a different approach called time distortion, which applies to a timekeeping device that is affected by the result of being in a moving, incomplete coordinate system. So I hope this helps you, I hope this example helps you get your arms around some of those key concepts and some of the differences. A second question, also related to the examples I gave last week, is doesn't the bird experience resistance in your example? Basically, this question implies that the bird is meeting wind resistance as a result of being in the moving cage. I have to say that the answer here is also no, it does not experience resistance. But in order to see why, we have to build up the example piece by piece. First, put two poles in the ground along our highway, perhaps a mile apart from each other. At this point, there's no truck involved at all. Just send the bird in flight over the highway from the pole at the origin to the other pole and measure how long it took the bird to fly using your watch. For the purposes of our example, say it took 40 seconds. Has the bird experienced wind resistance? Of course not. We've just asked it to fly a straight path. So now we're going to repeat the experiment, but this time we're going to move a flatbed truck directly alongside the bird. So the truck is moving at a slightly slower speed than the bird flies, but to anyone looking at this from a side view, it looks like the bird is flying over the truck. It still takes the bird 40 seconds to make the trip between the poles that are in the ground. Has the bird experienced resistance? No, it hasn't. So now we put the bird directly over the truck and repeat the experiment again. Again, we find that it takes 40 seconds to make the flight. Now we put four bars or, or poles on the flatbed truck, one at each corner, and repeat the experiment. And again, find that it takes 40 seconds. We add more bars and repeat, and we continue along this line of reasoning, reasoning until we've built a cage completely around the bird. And in all cases, it takes the bird 40 seconds to fly between the poles that are on the ground. Since the bird's traveling time hasn't changed at all, there's no wind resistance. The reason that some people talk about resistance is because at some point we ask the bird to fly between poles that are attached to the truck. But this isn't resistance it's, it's that we're seeing. It's the fact that the median that we're asking the bird to fly through, in this case air, isn't contained by the cage and therefore isn't moving with the truck. In a complete coordinate system, the air moves with the truck, and since that's the medium that the bird travels through, we get a different result. 
and this is a key difference between a complete and an incomplete coordinate system. Now with those questions behind us, I want to talk about one of the foundational experiments in special relativity and how I believe it should be analyzed to correspond with the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. Specifically, I want to take a look at the landmark Michelson and Morley interferometer experiment. In this experiment, two researchers wanted to see if they could measure the orbital speed of the Earth, which they knew was about 30 kilometers per second. And they came up with a very ingenious experiment where they took a beam of light, split it into two beams, sent them along two perpendicular paths, and rejoined them later. If the Earth was moving through an ether or a wave medium of some sort, then the two beams would recombine slightly out of phase with one another, and they'd be able to measure the, the result, do some math, and figure out how fast the Earth was moving. So they ran their experiment and collected their data, and found that the Earth was moving at about 7 kilometers per second. Well, clearly, this isn't anywhere close to the 30 kilometers per second that they were expecting. So they concluded that their data did not support an ether-based model. Now, proponents of special relativity take this one step further. They conclude that the measurements captured by the researchers were the result of experimental error and that the answer of seven kilometers per hour, or excuse me, seven kilometers per second should really be zero, which would support Einstein's theory. Since seven kilometers per second is much closer to zero than it is to 30, this seems reasonable to them, but is it right? Well, to answer that question, we have to see what's going on and what the researchers did in their experiment. But before we do that, I wanna share a thought. I think it's important to remember that a conclusion based on analysis of the data could be different if the data is analyzed in a different way. So when someone asks me how my model interprets the null result of the Michelson and Morley experiment, I have to say my model agrees with their data, but the result of my analysis isn't zero. It's 30 kilometers per second. Yes, you've heard me correctly. I believe that the Michelson and Morley data shows that they got the result that they were looking for. So right off the bat, you're going to ask, how can this be when everyone else who's looked at it so far has not reached that conclusion? And to answer that question, I want to give you a few examples to set the context and explain how I'm analyzing the data and explain how they've analyzed it. So let's start with an example. Let's say that you're standing someplace and I'm standing exactly 300 million meters from you. Now I've selected this distance for a specific reason, which I'll explain shortly. Now let's say that you have a flashlight. You turn it on and you point it at me. One second later, after you've turned on your flashlight, I start to see the light. What color is the light that I see? For sake of our conversation today, let's make it yellow. And the reason I see yellow light instead of red or blue or white is because the flashlight is emitting light at a particular frequency. And we're going to call this frequency F. And since frequency is typically given in Hertz, we're going to say that the flashlight is emitting a yellow light at F Hertz. So the first thing to note is that if you see a different color light, it's because it's at a different frequency or said in reverse, if the light is at a different frequency, you will see a different color. 
The second thing that we know about light is that as humans, we can only see light because it exists in a certain frequency range. If the frequency is too low or too high, we won't see anything at all. So now that we have agreed that I see yellow light at frequency F hertz, now I can ask, how many cycles of light are there between you and me? Well, hertz is another way of saying cycles per second. And here's where setting our distance to 300 million meters helped. Since we know that this is how far light travels in one second, and we know that frequency is expressed in hertz or cycles per second, we can say that there are F cycles between you and me. Now let's say I'm holding up a mirror. So the light reflects off the mirror and heads back towards you. Now we can ask a whole bunch of other questions. First of all, how many cycles are there between my mirror and you? And again, the answer is F. So now for the tricky part. What is the frequency of light that you see? Is it F? Or is it 2F, which is the sum of how many cycles there are from the flashlight to my mirror, and then from my mirror back to you? So one could reasonably conclude that the frequency is 2F because they add both values. But is this right? Well, we can ask some other questions to kind of intuitively find our way. So we can ask a question like, what color of light do you see? And if you say yellow, and we've already determined that yellow light exists at a very particular frequency, then you must be seeing the same frequency of light that I'm seeing, or F hertz. And also remember, we talked about the visible range. And in the case of frequency, a 2F hertz signal is outside of our ability to see it with the human eye. So both of these suggest that simply adding the numbers together to conclude 2F is not right. And in fact, there's something called the superposition of waves principle that tells us how frequencies behave. And in this case, it guides us to use the average of the two measurements rather than their sum. So why is this important? It's important because Michelson and Morley didn't apply this principle in their analysis and instead added the two numbers together to conclude a frequency of 2F hertz. Now remember, they were on the cutting edge of research and at the turn of the century, many things that we now take for granted had yet to be discovered. They didn't think in terms of frequency or hertz. In fact, hertz wasn't established as a standard measurement of frequency until many years later. Furthermore, the distance between their light source and their mirror wasn't anywhere close to 300 million meters. So it wasn't obvious that they were doing a frequency-based experiment. As a result, the superpositions of waves principle wasn't factored into their analysis. So in my analysis of their data, I take this into account. A second problem with their analysis occurs because their actual results and their expected results are for different measuring intervals. Consider the following example. Let's say that if you can run around a large city block in five minutes, I'll let you join my Olympic team. At each corner, I place a referee with a stopwatch. So when he sees you turn the corner, he starts measuring time, and then he stops it when you reach him. You turn the corner and the process repeats until you've reached the finish line and have completely run around the block. So you run a big square and at each corner is someone who will measure how long it took for you to run that length of their side of the square. And when you get to me, they all radio in their results. 
Let's say the first leg took you a minute and 50 seconds, and the second took two minutes, the third took two minutes and 10 seconds, and the fourth took two minutes and 30 seconds. While I can see that you were slowing down in each leg, your worst result is two minutes and 30 seconds, which is far less than the five minutes I was hoping for. So welcome, you've made the team. So what's wrong with this example? Should you have really been added to the team? Of course not. The problem is that my expected result, five minutes, is what I was expecting to see in total. And the actual results, what I measured, were only for one-fourth of the total. So I'm comparing apples to oranges, as the expression goes. And in order to fix this, I either need to change my expected result by dividing by four, or I need to sum up my measurements to give me a grand total. Only then can I make an apples to apples comparison, in this case comparing my expected result of five minutes to a total actual result of eight minutes and 30 seconds. Now I can see that you were actually pretty slow and shouldn't have been on the team. I reached a different conclusion based on how I looked at the data. Now this example applies to the Michelson and Morley experiment because they produced an expected result for a 90 degree rotation of their device. But then they took actual results measured every 22.5 degrees or one-fourth of their expected result interval. As in my example, you can fix this by dividing their expected result by four or by summing four of their actual results. This is another factor that I take into account in my analysis of their data. In either case, when you make the corrections I've suggested using today's example, along with one more correction associated with the superposition of waves principle, the Michelson and Morley data is reanalyzed to produce a result of 30 kilometers per second. And as I mentioned earlier, this is interesting because it was the result that they were expecting and was also the known Earth orbital velocity. Now, as scientists, we're required to be skeptical and ask ourselves, could this revised analysis be wrong? And of course, I have to admit that that is one possibility. But to reduce the probability of that being the case, I've also looked at Miller's repeat 1933 experiment. And while he used a different device size at a different location and a different measurement interval, his data also produces a 30 kilometer per second result when reanalyzed in the same way. Now, interestingly, Miller set out to produce a more accurate device. And in my reanalysis of his data, he ends up with an answer that is even closer to the known Earth orbital velocity than Michelson and Morley did. So one question I've been asked is, why don't you get a much bigger number than 30 kilometers per second, since we know that the solar drift is far greater than that, with some researchers suggesting that it's between 300 and 400 kilometers per second. And they suggest that if this is the case, then my analysis must be wrong. I disagree. Just because we don't get their expected result doesn't mean the analysis is wrong. It just means we didn't get his or her expected result. And just was the case of my analysis of Michelson and Morley, we should consider that perhaps there's something I've overlooked. That's one alternative. Another alternative is that it is accurate, and we need a model that explains what we're observing. 
and some of the ether-based theories fall into this category, for example. I, for one, remain open to both possibilities, but I think it's safe to say that Michelson and Morley did not find zero as their result. So when you consider the evidence, both mathematical and experimental, we can show that there are some pretty significant problems with special relativity. Mathematically, we've already shown that it doesn't adhere to the rules of algebra. Experimentally, I've shown that the Michelson and Morley experiment can be reanalyzed using frequency-based principles to show a result of 30 kilometers per second. Again, this is not just their expected result, but it's also what we know to be the velocity of the Earth around the Sun. Now, it's extremely important to recognize that these problems were not trivial or easy to find, which is why they haven't been discussed before. But now that we have these new perspectives, it gives us a new way of evaluating not only special relativity, but any alternative model that might be offered as a modification or replacement. As I've said before, the goal is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but is instead rather to, to gain a better understanding of what should remain, what gets changed, what gets retired, and what gets introduced anew. So to summarize today's show, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. First, with respect to things like time dilation, please try to understand why Einstein reached this conclusion in the first place. I hope that by understanding the differences between a complete and an incomplete coordinate system, you can see that if you have these two types of systems, you don't end up with time dilation. But if you have only one system, then time dilation is a natural conclusion. I hope that you recognize that a key difference between my model and Einstein's theory is that I have two types of systems and he only has one type. I also want to leave you with an understanding that it is a, a model must be consistent with the experimental evidence or data. This does not mean that it has to agree with someone else's interpretation of the data, but that the data must agree with the model. In the case of Michelson and Morley, by changing the perspective and understanding that at its core, their experiment is one that is frequency-based, you can see how their data is, is examined to reveal an Earth orbital velocity of 30 kilometers per second. And as I've mentioned before, this is important because it's what they expected and what we know the answer is. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about my analysis of Michelson and Morley, please feel free to visit the paper section on my website, www.relativitychallenge.com. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode six of the relativitychallenge.com podcast. As I wrap up today's show, I want to remind you that I'd like to hear your feedback, thoughts, comments, and suggestions. Feel free to drop me a message at email at relativitychallenge.com. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. This show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and relativitychallenge.com. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope that you'll return again next time. Until then, be well.